Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Moulded, Formed, Prepared by Pastor Sean Wood. If you have your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in Romans chapter 9. Uh, for those that have stuck it out through Romans chapter 9, uh, give yourselves a pat on the back. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging passage. Uh, Romans 9, 10 and 11, quite often... Uh, as people preach through the book of Romans, they get to the end of Romans chapter 8 and they jump straight to Romans chapter 12. They miss these three chapters quite often because there is the assumption that what is in here is stuff that we don't want to confront. But some of the stuff we find in Romans 9 and Romans 10 is just highlights how glorious God is. And my aim, uh, as we will see, as we work through today, my aim is actually not to give you a complete understanding of what Paul's talking about necessarily, but more to remove confusion if I can. For those that were with us last time, we finished in verse 18 with this verse, which is now going to spur on the next question. Paul finishes in verse 18 with, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We had a look at God's mercy. We had a look at the real rags to riches story, which is where God takes every single one of us who are undeserving and pours out his mercy on each one of us, which we don't deserve. But some are hard, and when we looked at Pharaoh and we looked at the hardening of Pharaoh, we have to ask ourselves a question. When, When it comes to hardening Pharaoh, how much work do you think God had to put in? It's not much. As we work our way through these verses, however, I am aware because it was a question that arose in my mind. When you read that verse, it sounds like this. It sounds like God in his sovereignty, and we sang about God's sovereignty this morning. Sovereignty is a part of who God is. We learned last week that mercy is not something that God does. It is actually an intrinsic part of who he is. God doesn't do mercy, God is mercy. God is merciful, God is loving, God is kind, and talk about those in a moment. But a question arises, does God deliberately have mercy on some people so that they will spend an eternity with him? And on the flip side of that, does that verse say that God deliberately wills some people to an eternity without him? John Calvin would say yes. John Calvin would call it double predestination. John Calvin would say that, you know what, what we see in Scripture, bear with me for a moment before you get the tomatoes out. John Calvin would say, you know, what we see is a picture painted where God wills people to salvation and he wills people not to salvation. I would disagree with John Calvin before you get the tomatoes out and I want to show with you why. I want to begin with a story. It's a story about five friends, but it's a fictional story, and I know what you're all thinking. (laughs) The minute you said you had five friends, Pastor, we knew it was fictional. But I I want to tell you a story about five friends of mine, fictional story, and I learn of their plans. Bear with me for a moment. They're, They're planning to rob a bank. And how many people know that the odds are that if you rob a bank anywhere, you're probably not going to get away with it? 
But my five friends, I learn, are planning to rob a bank and I begin, once I become aware of their plans, I begin to let them know, you know what? Uh, uh, I plead with them, you've got to change the course of your life. You've, you've, got, to, you've got to give up on this. And, and, and I plead with them, it's against the law, the destiny is, the, the outcomes of your choices are going to be uh, many, many years in jail. I, I know it paints a picture of, of sailing off into the sunset with millions of dollars in your pocket, but that doesn't happen. And I plead with them over weeks and weeks and weeks, but they go ahead anyway. And on the day, I manage to grab one of them as they're heading for the car and I wrestle him to the ground. And the other four turn around and they leave him behind and they go ahead anyway. And when they get to the bank, it all goes pear-shaped. And a guard is shot. And a police officer that's walking past bursts through the doors and he's shot and killed as well. And my four friends are sitting on death row. I have two questions from that story. First question is, is it my fault that those four are sitting on death row? and that they are suffering destruction. My second question is, to the friend that I wrestled, who do you thank and give the glory for that your destiny was changed? I want to help you answer those two questions as we work through today's passage of Scripture. Today I want to talk about a God who moulds, God who forms, same word in the Greek, and a God who prepares. The exact question that I've just asked about John Calvin and so forth, is a question that Paul preempted would come from what he's teaching. And so he says in verse 19, he says, so will you say then, what, or will you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? What's Paul saying? Paul is saying, well, obviously then, you are going to ask me, how can God find fault? How can God judge anyone? If he's sovereign, if he's in control, if he just overrules everybody, which is not what he... Scripture teaches, if that's what happens, then, then how can he find fault with any of us? And Paul would like to, to answer that question. The question is an attempt to remove the responsibility of man. Verse 20, Paul goes on and says, and I love this verse, but who are you, O man? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded or will what is formed say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? That question arises from a misconception both of who God is and who we are. And Paul wants his readers in Rome to know you guys have got things around the wrong way. You guys have done what Paul would probably term in today's language, it's been the great reversal. And it hasn't stopped in 2,000 years. What do I mean by the great reversal? Paul wants to know as, as he begins to talk about the potter, language that all of them would understand, particularly in the first century. As he begins to talk about the potter, he said, there's been a great reversal. Uh, you see, God is supposed to be moulding us, but... Uh, we're all trying to put God on the potter's wheel. And nothing's changed in 2,000 years. In 2,000 years, we still want to shape God into a God that, that, that's convenient. We still want to shape a God that just gives us everything we want. We, we want to shape a God that loves us and is kind. We, we want a picture of Jesus with blue hair and uh, blue eyes, sorry, and long blonde hair. Nobody in the Middle East has blue eyes or long blonde hair. We forget that that same Jesus 
in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, what's it all about? It's, it's revealing who Jesus is. That's what it's all about. That same book, you know, your blue eyes and blonde haired Jesus, that same book he's riding on a white horse with a tattoo down his leg that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he has a sword in his hand. Uh, we're trying to mould a God that doesn't have a sword. There is a big push today to, to mould a God that there's no consequences for your sin. Have a talk to David, the king of Israel. Did God forgive David? Absolutely. Did David repent? Absolutely. Was he a man after God's own heart? Absolutely. Did he have a very close, wonderful relationship with God? Absolutely. But he made a lot of mistakes and those mistakes had consequences. Trouble never left his house. He had a baby that died. He had a son that tried to overthrow him off the throne. He knew trouble in his house. He knew consequences for his actions. We want a God that's loving and kind and I'll do everything I want to do while it's okay and then I'll just say forgiveness and it'll all go away. And we forget the God that hates sin. We forget the God that loves us so much and hates sin so much that he sent his only son to walk up the hill of Calvary to take it all away. I would like to say this morning that John Calvin was both right and wrong, both at the same time. The story of my five friends and the story of every single one of us is simply this. The simple way to understand the whole passage of Romans 9 is what Paul's trying to tell us is, you know what, unless God intervenes, we're all destined for destruction. In fact, that's the message of the gospel. If we, if we interpret Romans chapter 9 in light of the whole message of, of Romans, what's it telling us? We begin in, in Romans chapter 1. What happens there? He highlights that God's wrath is on those that are outside of Christ. He highlights their sin. And he says every single one of us are in sin. Every single one of us are born into rebellion. Every single one of us want our own life, our own way. And unless God intervenes, We're all in a lot of trouble. Blessed be his glorious name. The sovereign God, my testimony, I'm going to read you the testimony in a moment. When we finish, I'm going to read you the testimony of the man that's writing this book. Have a listen to what his conversion sounds like. It starts with the words, I was on my way to Damascus. Wow. When the light shone around me and I heard a voice. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus highlights very beautifully how the whole gospel message paints a picture, not of man striving after God, but of God striving after the hearts of men. And we try, to, we try to make excuses. We live in a society today that's all about excuses. We live in a generation that's clamoring for excuses. What the gospel does is it removes all of your excuses. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1? He says that his divine and glorious attributes are clearly visible in everything that has been made. So then you are without excuse. You will not stand before God and say, I never knew. Because everybody has exactly the same opportunity. Everybody has the same opportunity to accept the mercy and the love of God. Romans chapter 10. We finish Romans chapter 9 today. You'll be glad to know. But when we get to Romans chapter 10, we now flip the coin on why Israel has missed out. A big word called unbelief. God, uh, Paul will finish Romans chapter 10 
with this verse. Quoting God, he says, I've held up my hands all day long, brother Rob, to a disobedient and contrary people. I'm not saying you're disobedient. Karen would say that, I wouldn't say that. The message of the gospel paints a picture of every single one of us lost until God finds us. That doesn't remove any excuses and it doesn't remove our part in the whole play. We'll get to that one before we finish today. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God, will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? That word mould or formed is used in 1 Timothy 2.13 and in that verse, uh, uh, Paul is quoting to his protege, Timothy, he's quoting uh, the Genesis chapter 2 where it says, and God formed Adam from the dust. It speaks about individual attention and care. Every single person in this room needs to know a beautiful truth. You're not a mistake. You didn't just happen by chance. The message of Scripture is that God forms you in the womb. God knows you. And Paul would say, I was found of him. I want to assure you today, if God can find me, he can find you. If God can rescue me from where I was, he can rescue you. And why I love the testimony of Saul of Tarsus is right now, I want you to think of the most obstinate person Think, think right now in your mind, picture somebody you think that person would never, ever bow the knee and come to Christ. Then read Acts chapter 9. Because if there was that person in the first century, it was Saul of Tarsus. Everybody in the church would have said, that guy, he'll never bow to Jesus. Oh, he bowed all right. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon's absolutely correct. He says you'll either bow in this life or the next. It's our choice. But this is Paul's asking a question that in reality somebody else has asked. Uh, a little friend of mine in the book of Job, <laughs> Job can be a very confronting book, but let me paraphrase what Job's all about. Begins with, everybody thinks it's a gamble between God and the enemy, but that's not the case. But it begins with the enemy challenging God saying, you know what, Job only loves you because of what you give him. And so the enemy says, basically, I'm paraphrasing in the Sean version this morning. He says, you know what? He says, take away everything you've given Job and let's see if he still loves you. God says, okay. So he takes everything away, inflicts him with infirmity. And then what we read after chapter 2, uh, right through the story of Job, is we actually read one great big long prayer. We see emotional highs, emotional lows, but there's one question that arises in the heart of Job the whole time. I haven't sinned. I haven't made any mistakes. I, I, I can't see anything inside of me that deserves this. Why has this happened to me? Anybody else ever ask that question? Silence. I love it. I, I love silence like that. But I love how God answers Job because you know what God could have done? God could have kind of given him what I like to call divine Polaroids. And for the fishermen in the room today, you'll understand what Polaroids are. When I go fishing, 
I like to be able to see what's going on underneath the water. I like to be able to see what's going on behind the scenes. And, and when you turn up the water, you can't see because of the glare of the sun. But the minute you put Polaroids on, I get a look into another world. And what God could have done for Job is he could have pulled the curtain back and said, here, young man, have a look at what I'm doing behind the scenes. And Job would have been happy. But instead, what God does is he challenges his right to ask that question. This is confronting. Why? Because it puts us on the potter's wheel. And it demands that we trust God's character. It demands that we trust his goodness. It demands that we trust that he will not operate outside of his glorious, merciful character. All of history and all of scripture paints the same picture. God operates in accordance. And so Job, what God does is in chapter 38 of Job, he he says, where were you? When I created the earth. Where were you when I formed the mountains? Where were you when I weighed the oceans? He says to Job, he says, can you tell me where I hide the darkness? Can you tame the Leviathan? (laughs) Will what is moulded, great question, Paul. Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Why is this happening to me, God? Uh, C.H. Spurgeon says that in the, in the storms of affliction, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I lay my head. What's C.H. Spurgeon saying? When everything's breaking loose, I can rest my head on the fact that God's in control. What does Jude say? Now to him who is able to keep you, The profound truth that's wrapped up in the word keep, God keeps us. Sometimes when we would, if it was all up to us, we'd mess it up, right? The reason salvation cannot be all up to us is because if it was, we would make an absolute mess of it. But because it's all up to God, yes, we respond. We'll get to that part shortly. Verse 21, has the potter... No right over the clay. I love this verse. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? Isn't it up to him how he operates? Who are we to question God? I remember when I was playing football, we had one coach. And we had something like 20 players, some on the field, some on the bench. And not one of those players ever assumed the wrong role. He only ever did that once. When the coach said, I want you to go down the back line, no one ever asked why. Because he's the coach. <clears throat> there was a man in the first century. He was a leading religious man. He, he knew the Torah almost inside and out. He, he was called upon when there was a problem. But then he has a huge problem. Jesus comes along. This man, he's a, he's a leader of the Pharisees. He's, he's one of the rulers in the Sanhedrin. And he goes by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he, I'm going to paraphrase now, and he basically says, he says, we know you are of God, because <laughs> nobody could do what you're doing unless God had sent them. What's he saying? You've got something I'm missing. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual leader in Israel, and I have no idea how to do what you're doing. 
And Jesus answered him, but he didn't ask a question. I love how that happened. Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, I tell you, unless you are born again or born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And for a leader in Israel who should have known what spiritual renewal was all about, he's clamoring to work out, how do I get back into my mother's womb? And he's completely amiss the analogy. Jesus would go on and say in verse 8 that the wind blows. This is the verse I love. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You do not know where it comes from and you do not know where it finishes. What's Jesus trying to teach us here? We don't control the Holy Spirit. The wind is a reference to the Holy Spirit and how God works. You can't remove all the mystery in how God works. We'd like to. We'd like to know everything. We're going to get to that before we finish today. We'd like to know everything. We'd like to, we'd like to have the answers for everything. I know as a pastor, I know you guys are shocked that I don't have all the answers. But my sons are shocked that I don't have all the answers. But what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, he says, you know what, the wind blows wherever it wishes. You don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it goes and you can't control it. And if there is a message to the church in, the, in 2020 is you cannot control the Holy Spirit. Stop trying to control the Holy Spirit. Stop trying to tell him what to do. Just open yourself up. But Jesus says, you can feel his power. Stand outside. If you stand outside on any given day in Tasmania, you'll know what wind is, by the way. But whenever it's windy outside and I say, is it windy? You'll say to me, yes, and I'll say, well, how do you know the wind's blowing? And you'll say, but I can feel its power and I can, I can see the leaves moving and, 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 and I can see the trees swaying. So, so we can't control the wind, but we can feel its power. We can't remove all the mystery. We don't have all the answers, but we can be open to its power. Shall, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable. Let's keep going on. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and this is the verse we need to grab hold of, the part of the verse we need to grab hold of, and to make known his power, to make known his power, has endured, I love this part, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for Destruction, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That word prepared there in verse 22 is used differently than it is in verse 23. In verse 22, it's a middle passive kind of voice. It doesn't directly bring God into the context of that verse. Let's read it again. It says... What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels, prepared, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? But in verse 23, there is a direct reference to God. It says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. But both of those verses are a link back to verse 18, speaking about Moses and Pharaoh. And what we learned with Moses and Pharaoh is... Uh, so many people rush to the references in Exodus where it says that God hardened Pharaoh. But that doesn't happen until chapter 9. In chapter 7 and 8 we read that Pharaoh hardened himself. 
And what we understand is what God has done with Pharaoh is, I will honour your choice. In fact, how Romans 1 puts it is this, God gave them over. And it's a reference to God's hand which holds back. I mean, if God... If God, you think 2020 was bad? I mean, if God just lifted a finger, this planet would go mad. The reality is we've got a bloke in North Korea ready to press the button any time, has been for some time. You, you, you think there's another... God is the restraining influence on this world. If God lifted his finger, we'd destroy each other. And what happens is, what C.S. Lewis alludes to is, it's God honouring their choice. Every single one of us are faced with a choice. Every single one of us, just like my four friends that we began with, they had a choice to get in the car, they had a choice to drive to the bank, they had a choice, even though I pleaded with them, even though I pleaded earnestly with them, they made a choice. We're going to go our own way. That's the message of Romans 1. We live in a society today that says we're going to go our own way. We live in a culture today that says you can't tell me how to live. It's called feet firmly planted in midair. But he has prepared. There is destruction prepared for those. But he has also prepared beforehand glory for those on whom he shows mercy. As we prepare to come to a close, and I, I ask the worship team to get ready, Mark, I'm going to ask you to do me a favour if you can. Can you go and turn the lights off? Count to three and turn the lights back on for me, please. When it comes to these verses, can we remove all the mystery? And what's going on here, it, it, there appears to be an apparent contradiction. I'd like to display a contradiction for you. Wow, you guys look better with the lights off. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Now, the minute the lights came back on, an enormous contradiction just happened that where most of us here are unaware of. And the contradiction is in, actually, it's in physics. And those who know the laws of physics know that light manifests as particles and waves both at the same time. And they say, you know what? That's a contradiction. You can't have contradictions in the laws of physics, otherwise everything just goes falls apart. And that's a contradiction. You can't manifest as particles and you can't manifest as waves. There's a problem here. And when they look at it, they see a contradiction. When we look at Romans chapter 9, when we look at the enormous, glorious sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, we assume a contradiction. But the physics, those that study physics will tell you, there's actually not a contradiction, there's just a lack in our understanding. We don't have all the information. Or, as Paul put it, sometimes we look through a glass dimly. As we come to a close today, let me briefly give you the outline of the testimony of Paul. Paul would say, and by the way, this term accepting Christ, it's not in Scripture. Uh, what we do see is conversion 
And the description of Paul's salvation, his salvation, is the word conversion. And just like being born again, it starts small, yes, and yes, it grows. It doesn't all happen, but there's a conversion on the inside. You know what Saul would say? He would say pretty much the same as what I would say. He'd say, I was just going about my life, you know. I was just on my way to Damascus. When a bright light shone around me, and I heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know what Saul's immediate answer was? Lord, who are you? Hang on a second. Here's a guy that was in the temple every day. Here's a guy that had grown up at the feet of Gamaliel. Here's a guy that knew the Torah. He knew the Bible better than anybody. He would go on and say, in regards to the law, I was blameless. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what's he saying? I have no idea who God is. Lord, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. The story of Paul is that You know, God didn't need to use Ananias. But Paul struck blind and he's humbly led into the city and Ananias has to go and pray for him and scales fall from his eyes. And I pray, I pray, I pray for the Pharisees. I pray for the religious people that scales would fall from all of our eyes. I need scales to fall from my eyes. And from that moment it says that when Paul had eaten and rebuilt his strength, he went immediately into the city and proclaimed Christ. Immediately. That's conversion. And my story is a story of God that found me. And the call of the gospel is to get God off the potter's wheel and the action, the response that God asks from each and every one of us is to step onto the potter's wheel. The action is surrender. Remember Aslan and Edward from the dawn of the, the voyage of the dawn treader? The whole picture is painted of of Edward, this grotty little boy that's turned into a dragon and, and, and how Aslan, a picture of Christ, uh, it's amazing how C.S. Lewis writes these, but Aslan is a picture of Christ and he comes, <laughs> he comes to Edward and he shows him the well and he says, you've got to be unclothed and so Edward tries to take his dragon skin off layer after layer after layer after layer after layer and every time he does it gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder until finally he submits to Aslan and Aslan One painful cut. Yes, it's painful at times. But Aslan, which is a picture of Christ, when he submitted to Christ, takes the dragon skin off and throws him into the world. What's the call of the gospel? The call of the gospel is to surrender. Stop trying to tell God what to do. Stop trying to make God into an image that suits us and just say, God, I trust your good character. I trust your sovereignty. I trust your mercy. I trust you will not let me fall and I trust that you will keep me. I pray. Lord God, I pray that each one of us would step onto that wheel this morning. Lord, that you would mould us as you would see fit. 
that you would overcome our hearts. Thank you for mercy, O God. Thank you that you choose to pursue each one of our hearts. You are pursuing every person on the planet all at the same time. Thank you that when I was unlovable, you loved me. Thank you that when I was rebellious, you reached out to me. And Jesus, I thank you that when I was drowning in my sin, you've walked up the hill of Calvary for me. Lord, I pray that we would surrender afresh to you this morning. In your wonderful and glorious name. Here's the parameters of love. Because now, a relationship with God is by choice on his part. That's what mercy is. Mercy says, you don't deserve it. Mercy says, I shouldn't reach out to you. Mercy says, no matter what you've done, I value you because of who you are and I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to reach out to you. But God didn't come to create robots. So now we have a choice. And a love relationship is defined by choice. And everybody in this room has a choice. Every morning you open your eyes, God willing, you have to make this choice. God, today you're so much more valuable than everything else. Let us pray. This morning we're going to sing a song of worship and if you need prayer, the altar's open. We'd love to pray with you, but can we all just bow our heads in his presence this morning? Father, I pray that you would peel the curtain back and let us see a greater revelation of who you are today. Thank you, Father God. We just... We just we don't have any other English words except for thank you. That even though you were not obligated, you reached out to every single one of us. You opened our blind eyes. You broke the chains from off our hearts. And I pray, Lord God, that each and every one of us would get that in this place today. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.